the residents all see what each other are doing and they are inspired or disappointed. Which one do you want to do? This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. JP and I are super excited to have a long-standing guest, Lou Tumi-Allen. Uh, I don't need to introduce Lou again. Lou is really a stalwart of our field, a fantastic spine surgeon. He's at the BNI. Welcome back to the podcast, Lou. Well, thank you again for having me. Yeah, we've had so many conversations with you going back to our first recordings at CNS many years ago, but maybe you could reintroduce the elements of what we'll talk about today, which is you know, your, your service record. You, you served in the U.S. military in the Navy, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about the background there. Yeah. So uh, after uh, completing my internship, I completed a surgical internship at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. And the, uh, as it turns out, I, I had actually matched in orthopedics and was going down the route of becoming an orthopedic surgeon. It was when I saw neurosurgery for the first time as an intern that I said, oh, I got to change gears. And in doing so, the Navy says, you know, Lieutenant, we have a cat. We have a place that we put people that change their minds. And it's not, <laughs> it's not sending you to where you want to go. We now have a fulcrum and that fulcrum is going to be an operational tour. And I said, okay. So the, the first thing that I had to cope with is uh, now uh, the uncertainty of going into a competitive field unmatched with having to do an operational tour or just becoming uh, or going down the, the path that I had initially taken. And my friends, uh, one in particular who I was supposed to be a co-resident with, he goes, what you're doing is absolute insanity. It's crazy. Do you realize that? I said, yeah, you know what? You're right. Are you still going to do it? Yep. And so I, I wrote a long, back in those days, we wrote letters, put stamps on it and sent it to the program director. And I still remember doing that. I still remember closing that mailbox and then calling up the detailer and saying, what are my options? He says, well, you can, you can be a, um, you can be a, a general medical officer. You can be a flight surgeon, you can be a dive medical officer. And the only reason I chose dive medicine is because of a pull-up requirement. And I said, you know, that seems more compatible with me. So uh, I finished my internship. I spent an additional six months uh, in, and the other reason I wanted to uh, go into dive medicine is because it gave me a six more months in San Diego and who can go wrong with that. It also gave me an opportunity to spend more time in neurosurgery. I spent time with uh, the staff members at the time who were uh, two surgeons in particular who were tremendous influences on me. One, Catalina Dureza, uh, who trained at Allegheny, and the other one, Kip Schultz, who trained at Emory and gave me uh, some connections at Emory where I eventually trained. Then after finishing six months, I classed up at Groton, Connecticut, uh, where we did submarine medicine. And actually that is, uh, it's also radiation health, which is where I learned a tremendous amount of radiation that I brought into uh, my uh, experience in spine surgery. So we learned about uh, a, all, the, all the elements of being on a nuclear submarine, uh, the uh, the culture of radiation awareness that Admiral Rickover introduced. And then after doing submarine medicine uh, and submarine, and basically it's, it's sub-school, it's learning uh, the ins and outs of, of submarine, uh, all of the elements of going underway and things, things of that nature. 
then you, they send you to dive school and dive school is in Panama City, Florida. And in Panama City, Florida, we uh, spent our, our days as what we call a mud puppy uh, because we are in the mud doing flutter kicks, sometimes with our masks on as the tide comes in, uh, running and, uh, and, and getting uh, shin splints because running on sand does that to you. And so that, and so from there, uh, I finished uh, dive school, uh, and then had just the the good fortune of uh, getting picked up by the Naval Special Warfare Unit One in Guam, where I then uh, spent the the following two years as a sleepy outpost in 2001 when I got there in July, and then 9/11 happened, and then after in the aftermath of that, we were doing uh, a lot of a lot of things that were tasks of the unit. As a as a dive medical officer, I augmented. Uh, Navy SEAL platoons that would insert into country, uh, whether it was the Philippines, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, the, uh, Australia. Those were the areas that we would we'd go and do predominantly training uh, and uh, and operational. Uh, that was a uh, the operational arm of my uh, medical career uh, was in the support and and a lot of times. Believe it or not, it's not very glamorous. It's checking vaccination records for the for the platoons that were coming in uh, and doing a lot of, as it ironically, orthopedic uh, treatment of of uh, sprained ankles, uh, uh, torn ACLs, uh, dislocated shoulders, uh, that sort of, uh, and and a and not an inconsequential number of venereal diseases. So all of that was uh, my my uh, my time uh, in the Navy before then. I. Uh, went over to Emory uh, and trained uh, as a neurosurgeon and then went back and finished my, my final two years. So that, that's uh, in a nutshell. Yeah. I had no idea that, um, and I've known you for, for decades now that neurosurgery had such a strong intersection into, um, the silos you went to the paths you went to, uh, in the military. But, you know, it's interesting, Micah Puzo, who's, who's my mentor and father in neurosurgery, he was also a, um, submariner out of Groton, and he used to always talk about how, and this is no small thing, um, to be a submariner was uh, you you had to be tested psychologically prior to, uh, as you said, getting underway, right? Because, you know, you talk about, you know, we as spine surgeons deal with people who have anxiety. Um, you know, you need to be on the opposite end of the spectrum from anxious, right? To be on a submarine underwater uh, for, for weeks at a time, right? No, no question. There is a, and they do something very early in sub school, and that is the escape trainer. Now, hopefully, you never have to use the escape trainer, but very quickly, and there, and there are people who at that point exit. That's not a training that they're going to complete. If you can't do the escape trainer, if I remember correctly, and it's been twenty years, but if I remember correctly, we do the escape trainer the first week of training. So that way, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? If you can't. If, if you can't be in a room and essentially just imagine yourself in, in, a, in a relatively small room that this slowly begins to fill with water <laughs> yeah. and you have to wait for it to get to a certain level so that then you can begin to go under the water and then proceed and, and complete the escape training evolution. You don't want to wait for the last week of training to identify that someone cannot do that because that is a requirement to be able to finish uh, training. And so they do that very early. Then admittedly, uh, it did. It did surprise me. There, there are some people that are uh, incapable of of doing it. Um, there are certain evolutions early in dive school that they did uh, very quickly. We learned that uh, there are some people that it 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 was not compatible. Not because of any. I mean, there there are just things that 
some some people are are not going to be able to complete and it's it's better to identify that early before making a huge investment in someone and recognizing that at the end yeah i think i think we can appreciate that with the the amount of cinema that is preoccupied with with submariner submariner life um and and obviously this past week the tragic event that happened with the with the recreational exploration of the titanic I mean, I'm sure you probably have lots of comments on that as to why people don't understand uh, the adversity of uh, an environment, as you described it. And, and we don't have time to cover that, but we could talk for days about that, I'm sure. But I, I want to come, come back to the, the, the part you touched on, which is this issue of, of the training and selection, because so much of this podcast centers around that and, and the parallels. In other words, we draw these parallels, but are they really... Um, homologous or analogous, like is neurosurgery training something like what you have to go through in, in the special operations world, uh, whether it be physical or psychological or spiritual? Um, help us with that. Like you've gone through both sides. You're one of the few that have. Um, we've interviewed lots of military folks that are neurosurgeons and spine surgeons, but very few special operators. So tell us a little bit about that. And, and is it a, an adequate comparison? Yeah. You know, I, I would say that Dare I say, at one point, it may have been more like the military. But look, you know, having said that, you know, my career uh, and in training was 20 years ago and things have evolved. But I was at a uh, breakfast uh, just a couple uh, days ago uh, for the Neurosurgical Society Meeting of America, the Neurosurgical Society of America meeting. And they were talking about, uh, it, was, it was an older crowd that talked about their, the fear that they had about uh, getting fired and the, and, the, and the frequency that that happened throughout residency was just an accepted norm. That, I think we can all agree, uh, that that doesn't happen with the frequency it once did. Uh, and the threshold to do it has raised. Now, that's, that can be good and that can be bad. Uh, one of the, um, and we, we were trying to get uh, and we're going to get uh, Commander uh, Dana DeCoster uh, on the podcast as well. And Dana was in charge of, of BUDS. Uh, it was his final tour. And one of the things that he always emphasized is the need to identify and cut dead weight. Uh, and you, the special operators, as, when he was in charge of BUDS, he, he had to do that because you finish them, they're going to be... A, they're going to join a platoon and they're going to insert in country and be in austere circumstances and they're going to have to work and you cannot have a weak link. So he felt, uh, and it's obviously something that uh, when, when we do interview Dana, we'll talk to him more about that, the, the importance of identifying early, like, like they did in, in sub, in sub school, uh, with the escape trainer and dive school with, uh, with the darkened masks and putting you in the pool at 4am. And, and if you can't do that, well, I mean, it, there, it's a, it's lonely at, at 80 feet of seawater if you're having a problem. You're going to have to maintain your composure to be able to remove yourself from that situation. At times, you can't surface for various circumstances, and you're going to have to figure out how you're going to do a slow set. But you have to problem set. But if you can't enter the pool at 4 a.m. in the morning with a dark mask and your hands maybe secured in a manner you're not comfortable with, Remember, all, all, there's all the air is on the surface, and, and it, it becomes a, a mental game. In, in neurosurgery, do we have mechanisms? Ha, have, we, have we not 
we overseen the the necessary mechanisms and, and neurosurgery does have them with the ABNS. I mean, the ABNS ensures safety, but there there is a time there as our surgeons are through board collection. Uh, and at times we will have a, a resident that may not may not be uh, down going down the right path for a fulfilling career and, and we shouldn't we should help that individual. Have we created a culture that we are remiss to do that and hoping that perhaps they'll find a safer spot on their own? I don't know. Uh, that that's uh, that's a uh, that's a difficult situation because there, as I said, in training there are some individuals who are going to excel in certain activities, uh, much in the same way that there are certain individuals who are are going to their, their pulse actually goes down when situations become dire. We, we, have, we have that too. When you need someone calm is when you have an intraoperative rupture of an aneurysm. Uh, you can't have someone decompensating when, you, when uh, there's a tear in the dura, nerve roots are coming out. I mean, we've got to land these planes. We've got to pull it together. There are some individuals who excel at that. Those are the ones we want. There are some who maybe uh, don't do as well with that. We need to figure out whether or not there's something that we can do to uh, remedy that or identify maybe that this is not the best path for them. You know, when you were talking about that escape trainer, I immediately zeroed in on that as a perfect correlate for some of the early phases of neurosurgical training, but also medical training in general. We, we've been talking lately on the show about how some of those standards of um, the hardness, the toughness, the grit are being phased out, you could say, or, or perhaps we're evolving away from how we push medical students to uh, explore their limits for fatigue. And even something as simple as a 24-hour call schedule in medical school is frequently becoming a controversial idea, uh, at least in the United States and North America. So there is that scenario that every neurosurgeon has to be ready for, a ruptured aneurysm. Um, a, a surgical emergency or, or an event in surgery where you want someone whose pulse goes down who can calmly address it. But the other aspect of neurosurgical trainee selection that I think is frequently an issue in the early years of neurosurgical training um, and per perhaps even in late medical school is, is not that acute instant in time in an operating room, but the overall sense of timeliness, ability to, as uh, Dr. Steve Giannata said on the show, the, the resistance to fatigue, the ability to keep going, and perhaps instead of being great in a moment, being good consistently over time. So at, at least in your experience, Dr. Tumilan, what trends have you seen in your trainees in the past few years, in the past decades, in terms of the simple things, just showing up on time for work, being able to stay and function for whatever hours are asked of them, because this isn't just a matter of getting to clinic on time and keeping your patients happy. The indications for emergent surgery and procedures uh, between strokes, between traumas and central cords, it's only expanding. So when we graduate people into practice, they need to wake up at two in the morning and come in when the situation calls for it. So have you, have you noticed an increased difficulty as some of our standards and training have dropped off and, and finding people who can just show up on time and be where they're told when they're supposed to be there? You know what? I, I think what I have seen is the, we, we've lowered, we, we've lowered that, that threshold 
of, or we've created a more uh, controlled environment with the eight-hour work week, and I and I, I recognize that and and all of the 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 background that went into that, I recognize that. At the same time, there are still some exceptional individuals. I can, they they I can see them. Um, they come to mind uh, as as some of the residents that I've seen come in here who they they just simply are of the warrior class. I mean they they stop at nothing. Those individuals are always going to be out there, no matter what. And and what we need to do is identify and encourage those individuals to come in. You are always going to have the, the, the Gaussian distribution is always going to be manifest. What we need to do is identify those who are on the far end that we are looking for in the Gaussian distribution and really cultivate their interest in neurosurgery and cultivate their careers in neurosurgery, have them be our leaders and role models. And then, you know, I help identify those individuals that are on the other end of that distribution. You're not going to get a, a, a Volker, Sontag, Robert Spetzler uh, every single time. You, 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 but at the same, we want that median to move as close to the, to the right the warrior class, the, the people who, who stop at nothing, the people who say, uh, you, you, you've got what? I'm on my way. Um, I mean, how many times have, have, have we all sat down to dinner and then the, you, you get that call in the trauma bay with the blown pupil? We go into our warrior mode. You're like, okay. Yeah. Lou, I, I want to emphasize for a lot of listeners, some of the folks, maybe they're not from America, they're not as familiar with this culture. Uh, obviously, you, you've been embedded in it for a decade, um, that it's not the tallest, strongest, most macho people that necessarily uh, or even are expected to do well in, in the screening process or the training process, right? It's, it's a lot of mental and psychological aspects that have um, less to do with you know, physical raw skill. And, and, I'm, and we don't need to get into to those particulars. But you know, JP and I did do an episode welcoming and congratulating this sort of transition period in June, July. And, and speak to our younger folks who are saying, okay, I got it. I got it. What do I need to do in my process of finishing high school, college, medical school to be better prepared coming into this next phase of life to be, as you say, of the warrior class, of the type of material, of the type of doctor that someone uh, like you at the BNI, who's world-renowned and, and leads national organization, says, that's what we need more of inside of our, um, our cultural framework of neurosurgery. We all have role models out there. We all we all see them, and if you 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 identify that one person who just keeps going, um, I will I will say that I saw that when I was at Emory. Uh, Dan Barrow as the chairman uh, would be. I was on call, and he is. We're up till three o'clock in the morning doing a ruptured uh, aneurysm. And then I go to update him in clinic the following day. The guy is in a seersucker suit seeing patients. And then we're at an interview dinner that night for the residents. I mean, that, that, that's a role model. You get someone like that. You get someone like Nelson Oishiku, who has got three things going on simultaneously. He's got a, a full lab going. He's the editor of the Red Journal. He's, he's, uh, has, uh, he's doing more pituitaries than, than anyone else in, this, in the southeastern part of the United States. And, and, and nevertheless, and then you, after, after getting pummeled on call, there he is in clinic in an ascot. Where do we find these people? 
These are role models. We all have them, whether it's whether it's the it's it's the fullback on your football team who's like, how does this guy never stop? Uh, or it's it's a, a teammate on another sport. You identify. We all do. We we whether we recognize or not, we admire that. We admire that that relentless perseverance that that drives and encourages all of us to become better. And that's what we. Mike, that's what we all want to, we, we get drawn to that. That's where we go to our societies. We get drawn and, and, and are uh, motivated by our peers, by what they accomplish and what they, what they do. And it makes us all better. All of us, when we're in that culture, become, be, we, we excel beyond where we would have done it individually. I saw that when uh, I was, uh, I remember what, that would have been uh, SEAL Team 5, platoon uh was that hotel or one alpha these guys they all made they made me a better uh dive medical officer they made me they made each other better and it was always trying to drive each other to to do a run swim run faster to 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 excel more on the prt to 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 hump more uh gear uh and to and to get and be just the a squared away 4.0 sailor it's the culture that they they create and so that's for those individuals who are listening to the podcast and and saying what do i need to do to get there find your role models they're there find the ones that you recognize whether you recognize or not you admire you you respect them you may not necessarily always like them (laughs) but you're going to respect them you're going to admire them and you say what do i need to do to make that part of of the culture that i subscribe to and that that weakness has no role Anything that just, anything that smacks of weakness, just get it out, get rid of it. You don't want to be, you don't want to associate your name with that. This is, but it's a perspective. Obviously, some people may say this to me on guys, a nut job. What is he talking about? But I mean, this is just, just a, it's just a way, it's, it's a, a, a way of existence, um, which I think is what our patients deserve, what our patients deserve. You know, that's a, that's a really important point on, on that on that idea of exercising yourself of weakness. I am still someone I'm at an age professionally where I still have role models. But you, Dr. Tumilan and Dr. Wang are obviously you've reached a level where you probably are a role model to more people than you have role models yourself. We all have that ratio. And and I'm just reaching the quote unquote, senior resident status. And I'm starting to have more people junior to me than senior to me, at least within our residency. And so I wonder for our listeners and honestly, free personal advice for me, um, how do you manage that transition and, and thinking about yourself as someone who was trained in the military, was trained in the civilian hospitals, and now is a trainer and you train people when you identify that member of the warrior class, and you identify that person who has all those unteachable qualities, how do you address yourself to that person, relate to them, and nurture those qualities that we all hope to select for in the match process? Yeah, I mean, you you hope that you create an environment that is conducive to development for anyone. Uh, because people and I look, I've seen some of the weaker links become some of the strongest links. And so you create a culture and you make sure that you 
you epitomize that that culture that you are representative of that there is an adage that they 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 said in the teams that we said in in the dive community you gotta gotta earn your dive pin every day the the seals would say you gotta earn your your trident every day uh, the only easy day was yesterday and so every day you, you there, there's no resting on your laurels and and you you've got to you got to fight as hard tomorrow as 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 you did today because it doesn't matter what happened yesterday and it's that ethos that really uh i and i think it's i think it's a very it's alive and well i mean the the point earlier is um are are we having a a, a declination in the quality i would say no we we still have i i am impressed by some of these uh, the residents that are finishing their accomplishments um what they what they are what they are able to do. And obviously it's not all of them and you're not going to get, you're not going to get that with all of them. Uh, but we, it is what I feel strongly is that we identify those who are in that, that, that right side of the Gaussian distribution that, um, fall along the lines that along the warrior class lines that then will become role models for others. And whether we all recognize it or not, the residents all see what each other are doing and they are inspired or disappointed. Which one do you want to do? Uh, we always want to inspire someone. We, we want to work so hard that someone else is going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to work, I'm going to work even harder than that guy. And then it, then it just, it just feeds on itself. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Tumilan, as, as we bring this to a close, I want to respect your time. We're recording this on a weekend, you're with your family. We appreciate your time as always. But I, I think with this subject that we're grappling with of training, be it in the military sector, civilian sector, the important focus, I think, for an individual considering their own training is obviously themselves. And that's their mental well-being, their physical well-being, their capacity to execute their will. And so when I recently saw you in LA at the AANS meeting, we had a great conversation about your book, MIS Surgery of Primer, which for our listeners, there's a teaser that that conversation will be coming out for the podcast uh, in the near future once we finish the series on the military. Uh, excellent book, excellent interview um, about it. But one of the things we started talking about after recording that episode was this new and revived focus on physical fitness and well-being and health for longevity and function that has started to consume some of your non-professional mind and, and your thoughts outside of work. So given that we're talking about training, um, which is at its heart, uh, making yourself into something else and making yourself better, I wonder if you could say a few words about your recent uh, change of mindset and approach to physical and mental well-being and how you think that applies to uh, the way you approach work and the way you conduct yourself while on the job at the hospital. Yeah, well, I, I give the the world's finest Navy for giving for giving me the insight about taking your body to extremes. I mean, what what they what they're asking us to do at a um, at an age when we sh should all be able to do it. But, you know, I'm a you're an operational medical officer uh, from the age of 26 to about 30. So we should all be able to do this. But when you've seen those limits, when you see what your, your your body can do, and I think at dive school, and I think of 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 the um, of our our breath hold challenges and and playing underwater hockey, which is a whole experience in and of itself, you know you, you can always do more than than what you, you 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 impose your own limits. And as as we all get older, it's 
you know, clinging on to those or, you know, maintaining uh, these habits. But I, and I do this again, uh, out of uh, when, when, um, as, as an intermittent faster, for instance, and, and subscribe to a lot of the things that uh, Peter Atia has been uh, promoting. It is uh, when, when people say, well, you know, you're, you're marking a patient, they go, well, don't you have to eat lunch? I said, no, you deserve a surgeon who is not going to eat lunch, I eat lunch during the weekends. Um, <laughs> You, you know, it's like, well, I don't want you. I was like, no, I mean, what, what you want me to go? And, and, um, what, what do people do? What, what happens to our body temperatures after we do eat lunch? They all go down. Right. And that's why the Spanish are, are known to have the siesta. Um, and so, uh, but the, these things are, it, it is in the extremes of, uh, when we look at, uh, the cold plunge versus the sauna, it is the contrasting, of of our of these extremes that transforms our bodies into healthier specimens uh, when we look at uh the the science is unequivocal uh and uh also those things are the the extremes of of being in the fasting state versus the fed state uh and making sure that we you know in in the exercise regimen that we do resistance workouts to a point that is is going to help us for longevity and that, uh, you know, it's nice to take a, a, a lackadaisical walk with the dog, but that's not exercise. You got to drive your heart rate up to 220 minus uh, your age and, and you got to hit that for two minutes, but it's going to take 20 minutes for you to safely get there. So it's a, it's a full 30 minute cardiovascular workout. These are the things that I feel, again, I, my patients deserve, they deserve the best I can become so that I'm ready to take care of them. And, uh, and also, I, who, who the ben, the health benefits are there. We, we, we feel better. Inflammation is down. These are the elements that I, I believe are uh, going to become increasingly important for all of us. The science is all there and we, we should really uh, recognize and embrace it. And, and I think it all, I mean, we, we talk about the healthcare crisis in this country and caused by the metabolic syndrome. Would, would we have that if the great American diet was not 21 meals a week, but maybe nine to 11. If we all did cardiovascular uh, exercise, if we all just did a hundred pushups a day, what kind of country we'd live in? The, the science is all there. That to me is true patriotism, keeping my body in the greatest shape so that I can represent the greatest country that history has ever known. And so that I can also not be a liability. I'd rather, I'd rather uh, my tax dollars go to uh, a, an aircraft carrier that can be put in the in the South Pacific than uh, Lipitor for me when I'm of Medicare age. I'll I'll take care of myself. Well, that's that's phenomenal. Uh, well said and amen, Doctor Tumilan. You are a true model of the warrior class in neurosurgery. Uh, we always love having you on. Appreciate your insights, your experiences in the military, uh, and working now within neurosurgery in the civilian sector, and uh, all the wisdom that you bring to share with our listeners. Um, I will say uh, we want to respect your time. And, and I mentioned before you with your family this weekend, a congratulations to your son who uh, reached Eagle Scout this weekend, the second in your family. And so the, the fact that you took time for those celebrations to come talk with us, uh, you know, it, we're incredibly grateful and we look forward to having you back on the show again. Thank you, sir. I look forward to visiting with you guys again. It's always great. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. 
Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.